0: You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit CAC.org.
1: Just this morning, I was walking around my yard. It's uh, mango season here in Florida, and I have 14 mango trees that I am good friends with. And so I was checking out the mango trees, and uh, out of the corner of my eye, right at eye level, there was this momentary blur of blue. And it took me a minute to find where it landed. It was a dragonfly. It was sitting still on a leaf right at my eye level. And it just seldom that I see a, a, a dragonfly sitting still long enough for me to possibly see it up close. I walked up close and I got within literally like three or four inches of it with my face. I wondered what I must have looked like to its little bulbous eyes (laughs) as this monstrous creature staring at it. But it seemed calm in my presence and I just got to study it and look at it and enjoy it. I later looked it up online and it was called a blue dasher, which just seems to me like a great name for anything, especially a dragonfly. and. I thought, here I am, I'm 65 years old, and today was my very first encounter with a blue dasher, at least an eye-to-eye encounter, where I noticed it enough to wonder what its name was, wonder a little, wonder about it. And I think about how many things in life are like that, you know, even when you live to my ripe old age, you just realize there is so much that I missed up until this point in my life, and so much more to explore and maybe even risk and encounter with. One of my great loves in life is birds, and you know, people who like birds don't like to be called bird watchers, they prefer the term birders, but uh, you think about that word bird watcher, it's somebody who's practicing the art of seeing, and not just seeing, if you love birds you listen, which is probably why birder is a better term but seeing and listening to birds, noticing things around us, trying to actually have some kind of an encounter with them. Same thing goes for stars. People are called stargazers who, who uh, in in a sense, heighten the art of noticing stars and uh, let themselves pause and linger long enough for a deeper kind of encounter. And it strikes me that if, It strikes me that if we have these arts or disciplines or practices of enhancing our seeing, maybe that helps us get a feel for what religion is supposed to be. Uh, It's supposed to be uh, a community that helps us see the invisible but ubiquitous presence of God and wonder and life and light in the world. And it, it got me thinking about our podcast and how we're trying to recover this art of seeing, this art of being in the world with uh, wide open eyes, attentive eyes. Uh, And um, in a sense, I suppose we're trying to fill in a gap that it seems like our religious institutions have, in a sense, let the ball drop or got distracted with other things.
2: It's so interesting to hear you say that, Brian. As I think about it and I reflect back on the season leading up to this, I found myself drawn to one of my favorite passages of all time, and it's a quote written by the Swiss psychologist Carl Jung, and you can find it in the 12th volume of his collected works. I'd love to read it uh, and see how it lands with everyone, but Jung wrote this. He said, Christianity must indeed begin again from the very beginning if it is to meet its high educative task. So long as religion is only faith and outward form and not experienced in our own souls, nothing of any importance has happened. The person who does not know this from their own experience may be a most learned theologian, but they have no idea of religion and still less of education. Theologians often fail to see that it's not a matter of proving the existence of the light, but of blind people who do not know that their eyes could see. It's high time that we realize it's pointless to praise the light and preach it if nobody can see it. It's much more needful to teach people the art of seeing.
1: Wow, that, uh, that, that image of uh, not proving the existence of light but of helping people who actually have eyes be able to see, obviously that evokes Jesus' words about whoever has eyes to see, let him see. Oh my, powerful quote.
3: It makes me think of this um, something Karen Armstrong said in the History of God, which was just when the Jew- Jewish religion and Islamic religion had decided that it's just futile to try to prove God. Christianity took it up, and I don't think we ever really <laughs> got past <laughs> got past that.
1: It would be so different if instead of trying to prove anything to people, we actually helped them see it for themselves, so they didn't hmm. need, need need the proof
0: seems to be part of the, the the contemplative dimension that's such a gift to christianity to the church of starting with that interior and having to move towards the exterior that it should start uh with that 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 purity of humble heart that would eventually kind of open up and go out towards the world that is it doesn't come from the the exterior religious practices which of course you know all religions will We'll build upon those and build them into their systems, but there's so much of like that radical movement in those early days, even like the first four hundred years, right, where you see the these attempts to to figure out how do we live this out how do we mm-hmm. how do we express and try this on and part of what I hear with with that young quote is just that interiority at the beginning that is certainly connected to the world and communities at large, but there's something about that like personal nature of starting with one's own place and one's own heart uh as as the as the seat of transformation out into the world
2: you know it's it's so interesting to hear you say that paul because i think what we're seeing i don't know about the rest of you but what i see with a lot of my friends colleagues peers is so many people who get into crisis when the external forms of religion the beliefs and the practices that they have been given just cannot line up with their personal experience and they actually find them at odds of it, uh, with it. Or, or perhaps uh, the beliefs and the practices fail them in a real time of need um, and, they're, and they're feeling empty in their personal experience. So, it's, it's kind of this, uh, I, can, I, can, I feel that, the need to go back again to the beginning because it, it really doesn't feel like many of us got the chance to start there.
1: Gosh, that's Gosh, that uh, makes me think that when people's faith begins to fall apart and they enter, quote, deconstruction, and we see it as a failure, instead to see it as an opportunity. And that phrase that Young used, what is it, Christianity must begin again from the beginning. Like, instead of saying, oh, the church has failed, we could say, oh, we've been presented with this amazing opportunity, uh, trying to begin again from the beginning.
2: I grew up in a family where four of us were church planners, so four of my five family members were pastors one way or another, and we went through a a season where it felt really great and we felt like a very religious and holy and special family, and then we went through a really, really bad season um, that culminated in really a lot of personal tragedy, and what happened? in 2008, my brother, who was a pastor, ended up taking his own life. So, it was a massive, massive tragedy, and it, it threw me off kilter in so many different ways. And then, just a few months later, um, my mom, who, who was also a pastor, checked into the ER with a headache and uh, she had a migraine so bad that she couldn't see. Mm. And so, I got a message and, and my sister had called to let me know, you know, she said, just, you know, mom's going to the hospital. And I, I remember a dear friend of mine at the time said, don't worry, it's gonna be fine. The universe could not be so cruel as to give you another crisis this close to the death of your brother. And the next morning I got a call and they said, if, if you wanna to talk to your mom again, you need to you need to get mm. here mm. today. Mm-hmm. So, it, it it threw my entire religious world into a tailspin. Mm. And, um, one humorous or encouraging anecdote after that was I was reading about the life of Carl Jung. And at one point in his life, everything kind of blew up and he had a major, major breakdown. And the biographer that I was reading said, Jung decided to approach it with curiosity and he thought, I'm a psychologist, and I'm having a breakdown, so I can approach this as an opportunity for a psychologist to study a breakdown from the inside. Wow. And I remember thinking, when everything was on fire, and I just like couldn't make sense of any of it, thinking, well, maybe I can follow his example, and at least in this, as a, as a, as a minister, I can approach a total religious breakdown as an opportunity to learn what it feels like from the inside and, and maybe something will come of it.
1: Wow. Oh my goodness. How, I, I, if you don't mind me asking, how how does it feel these years looking back on that? Does it feel like that really was, it precipitated some of the places you've explored and been able to go since then?
2: 100%, I think. I think that what was very uncomfortable at that point was um, having to see a religious bias that I didn't know that I had, mm. which was thinking that because we were quote-unquote good people, life, God, spirituality w- would protect us from suffering. I didn't know I believed that until it was violated and then I realized it was a big part of my world. Um, and then and then I think everything, everything in the last, uh, what is it, like 13 years has been kind of a journey Into that, but honestly, it's it's felt like you know switching from a black and white television to a to a widescreen HD you know vivid color presentation. It's it's one of the most shattering and painful things I ever experienced. But I feel like I stepped into a into a much more real universe Mm -hmm. as a result.
3: That that makes me think of one of the obstacles to seeing is this sort of cultural reflex that we have to push away suffering. And that if you push away suffering, you're also in some ways pushing away pathways to joy. Because if you are mm-hmm. not allowing yourself to feel one thing, you're not allowing yourself to feel anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I and I think that's, that might be something when I think about, about the church. I'm not sure the church is really done, and for the most part, nothing's ever 100%, but for the most part, um, in, across denominations, I'm not sure the church has done a lot to to help people be willing to be open to suffering. There's always, I mean, they have answers to suffering, um, but mm. they provide the answers, but those answers don't always work, as you have talked about, Mike. Mm. But they, there isn't that that those two things that you talk about, the curiosity. Mm-hmm. I mean curiosity is seen as questioning and doubt and that's usually that's usually just not what you're supposed to do. Um, you know just being that that open to, to the inquiry of what's, what's happening and what's going on. And the other thing I think about is here in this country, I think I, I always think of religion, even though we, we don't say that religion is a part of culture. And in this country, we have a huge culture of individualism. Mm-hmm. And so, when I hear, there's so much, even in my, in my religion, in the um, National Baptist Convention, you know, where we're, yes, we, we do, we pray to God, but it's really, in many ways, we act as if it's up to us to do things and to make things happen. And those places of suffering, often, at least they have in my life, taken me to that place where I have nothing, there's nothing I can do. All I can do is surrender and leave it up to God. And then that tends to make my life just become much more open to possibility and to see things and to go into directions that are much better for me, but I would that I wouldn't have seen otherwise.
1: Shiji, as you say that, I just think maybe this is part of what's happened to many forms of Christianity and other religions too. They have, instead of saying, we want to help you learn how to see, they have decided there are certain things we want you to believe. Mm-hmm. And so, the, the focus is not on helping you learn to see, it's telling you what you have to believe. And, and Mike, you had some beliefs, you know, that if you love God and if you're doing good work, you shouldn't ever be hit with two incredible tragedies in short order. And, I, 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 and then those beliefs fall apart. Um, And I'm thinking how COVID has done that to a lot of people. There were many people Mm. who thought, like, I'm sure if we did a statistical analysis, you know, no group of Christians uh, who have, you know, been able, who who are unvaccinated and are exposed to the virus, you know, their faith does not give them any statistical advantage uh, over somebody Mm -hmm. else. And there's a whole lot of people who believed that their faith would give them that and they went to church and then they got sick. Um, So... There's, in a, and there's, we all know there's a whole group of people who didn't believe that their preferred presidential candidate could lose, and then when he lost, they've been in this, you know, turmoil of needing conspiracy theories to explain why, and and something happens when your belief falls apart, where you say, okay, that's gone, I guess I better try to see what's still there, and maybe that's when, in some ways, th- this failure uh it, it, again, it becomes it becomes an opportunity, um, uh, and and I don't think we're saying this to blame religion. I think we're uh, or to blame Christianity or beat up on it. I think we're in a s- sense we're trying to help ourselves be compassionate that our religions have had problems. They've let us down in some ways, but this is our opportunity. And instead of ba- instead of blaming them, we're we're saying how can we turn this problem into an opportunity.
2: I I so resonate with that Brian. I I think this is a super super nerdy thing to say, but like my kind of little catchphrase when I came out of that life experience was that the the only answer to theodicy is theophany. Christi- Christian theology has this obsession with theodicy, which is which is the question of if God is good, why is there suffering? And I feel like you get to a point where you, you kind of don't care. All that all that matters is the question of theophany. Right? Where is God? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. is God there with you in the midst of that? And can you teach people how to find God, or or can we can we work together to see the divine in our most painful moments? Because um, I, I, I think I think three-quarters of of the theology we obsess about is just the bargaining stage of grieving, where we're just trying, we're just grasping for something to make reason so we can cope. And I, and I, I um, I think there's a healing that takes place when we can let that go and move past it. At least that's the way it was for me. I don't know how it's been for the rest of you.
1: It's funny, when we suffer, we go from, you know, before we suffer, we may have been looking for answers and explanations and doctrines and belief systems but suddenly you're thrown into suffering and you're looking for comfort and hope and peace and presence and strength. And one of our terrible problems, I think, is that we're given definitions of God, of a God who's in control, a God who makes things happen, a God who's like the chess master moving the pieces, and and our suffering creates an unsolvable crisis, like you said, um, it, it it that's what theodicy is all about this unsolvable conundrum of how if i have those assumptions about god could these terrible things happen and in some way it it requires us loosening up some of those beliefs about god in order to experience a, and see a way that god might actually show up but it, it won't look like what we were looking for
0: i love that and that that those have been questions that have been pressing on on my own mind and heart uh I had the opportunity last night to go see my first live concert uh, mm. in this pandemic time, and to be with a group of people and to celebrate life and you know just the joy that music can bring. It was overwhelmingly beautiful, and just to have that kind of aha of like the kingdom is here at hand. And so there was a moment of, of seeing that in in within this pandemic uh, and post pandemic and ongoing pandemic. Uh, we have yet to see where this is all going to go. And then I think of where is God in, in climate change? Where, where am I going to find uh like I, here's, here was a taste of this nugget last night. And then I look at my kids and I see the West, West United States are on fire. I see flooding in, in Germany. I see all these things happening. And I think where is Christ in climate change? Where, uh, how do I, I, I pass on? How do I teach my kids to learn how to see amidst global chaos and and things not going as planned or as I thought they should? And how do I how do I give them the practices and tools and find the communities that will support uh, this seeking of God, the seeking of Christ within climate change? And it's a big, big unknown for me. Climate change mm-hmm. is one of those things that hovers over me like a, a cloud, yeah. like a Linus in uh, peanuts, where we had we have like a cloud over his head. Like I can feel that at times just bearing its burden. Um so it's interesting to hear this conversation and and it resonates so deeply and then to be in the midst of like, I have no lessons from this. I I am just sitting in that in, in that unknowing. Um so I I, I I tee that back up to this group uh, uh around this learning how to see. Yeah,
3: you know, I, I think um that's part of where contemplation comes in. I, I think of two things one thing that mm-hmm. contemplation has taught me is that it's not that where God is is like where, where isn't God um, that that all of this is God even even the parts that we don't like that's God and how do we allow ourselves to see that? when we're getting all these messages that say that God is this perfect thing, God is all good, even though there's a passage in Isaiah that says that God created evil. Um, how do we allow ourselves to allow God to be whole mm. and not just want something that we think that we, that we want our idea of perfection and projecting that on God? How do we allow God to be whole? And then I guess the other, to me, I, I, I'm a big fan of mutuality. And that it's never 100% up to us. There's We get to go halfway and are met by the mm-hmm. other way. So I think part of us um, being able to see is, is to allow ourselves to be seen as well. Mm-hmm. And so, like, what are those things in our lives? And it often becomes, it comes. we have to go to those places of shame, those places where we feel that we're not worthy um, beneath those masks that we put on. You know, how, what, what does it take for us, as well, to get into that place of trust where we can allow God to see us?
1: Mm. It, it strikes me that uh, this is really one of the gaps that uh, CAC is trying to step into, to, uh, to say, look, maybe a lot of our religious institutions have been preoccupied with other things, uh, and without judgment we can just acknowledge that seems to be the case. Um, but I wonder if we could just reflect a little bit together, and I'm especially interested in you, um, Gigi, with your, you know, your special role at CAC. Uh, I wonder if you could talk to us about how you see this as part of the vocation of this whole community.
3: Um, the first thing that comes to mind is what Richard calls the alternative orthodoxy, in that in Christianity there actually are two stories about Jesus. One that most of us know and have grown up with is atonement theory, you know that Jesus came and died for our sins, and um, in part of in some ways Jesus is dying is our fault. Um, but then there's an alter- alternative orthodoxy that instead of starting with original sin starts with original blessing, and so it, it's CAC starts with giving us an alternative way of seeing, a way that is more life giving. Um, more open and that actually has a place for all of who we are as opposed to just those, those places that will get us into heaven, so to speak. Um, So that, that's, that's my, my first answer. And Paul, Paul's been at CAC way longer than I have. Um, And and Mike is also doing a lot the CAC, so they may want to chime in as well.
0: (laughs) I I love that. I think that's a, that's a original blessing starting from that kind of place that builds into the, the alternative orthodoxy. And um, so my, my audio cut there for, for a minute, so I apologize if I didn't quite hear it, uh, but then the, the tools and practices to help sustain this sense of, of, of beginning from a place of blessing and then flowing from, from that, that posture out to the world and to community. Uh, I think the, the CAC hovers in that space of trying to, uh, I mean, Richard says it so often, right? Uh, the edge of the inside and I think part of that foothold is being in relationship to the the tra- the tradition, um, uh, as he talks about in his tricycle of tradition, scripture, and uh, experience. But then also allowing this contemplative dimension to help set our view on reality. In uh, in uh, as you were saying earlier in your other response, you have just an uh, openness and and allowing the wholeness to be welcomed in, and not just the the stated preference that. Uh, it is in the acceptance of all that is that one can actually begin to engage with the world as it is uh, from a place of uh, true self. That's really beautiful, Paul. I think for me, as as the
2: newest person on the team, I, I'm I'm thinking about where so many of us find CAC from the outside, and I so appreciated Gigi your your uh, reference to the. To the other story, you know, and the and the idea of uh, substitutionary atonement and all these things. I think so many of us grew up with a religion that was um, in the idea of of producing a very harsh morality, and it gave us this divine image where God was an angry parent who was going to punish people for for doing wrong, and and a lot of us can get to a point where we can look back and see that that that's probably an immature belief that has its its place in a certain stage of growth, but if we really believe that the divine is punishing people um, for their actions, I, I think at a certain point what it does is it creates a lot of cognitive dissonance in us and it, it causes us to respond to suffering by looking at people who are suffering and saying, first, gosh, I'm so glad it's not me, <laughs> right, <laughs> and then second, uh, they must have done something to deserve this. They must have done something to cause this. And then worse, the religious answer, which is, if I can just correct them, then their suffering will go away. Mm. And CAC, I think, does such a profound job of meeting people who've been wounded by that belief system um, because it does create a a tremendous amount of cognitive dissonance where you can't feel the fullness of your feelings as you were saying earlier, Gigi, and there's so many places you can't go and then life drags you there in your human experience and you have to feel the fullness of great love and you have to feel the fullness of great suffering and and somehow with that comes empathy and a desire to begin to make sense of the things you're seeing and feeling that you didn't have permission to see and feel before. Mm. And that's what I love about the mission here is it doesn't run from that. Mm. It embraces it. Everything belongs. It really hurts sometimes, mm. but it's all a part of the arena where the divine is at work. And for me, that has been very healing and it's been very inspiring to work in an environment that's not afraid to go to the place of suffering and not afraid to retroactively look backwards and say, okay, where have our religious beliefs been harmful and how can we take that apart and learn to see it differently?
0: That,
1: uh, th- that's uh, really interesting f- for me to hear you all say that, uh, that in a sense, one of the gifts at, at CAC is that through uh, Richard and through the rest of the, the team, um, we're trying to provide people an alternate vantage point, uh, because what you see determines where you – is determined in part by where you stand, right? Uh, what w- What's your vantage point? And, and this alternative orthodoxy is an alternative vantage point, and you can maybe see some things from there you don't see otherwise. Uh, I, as you all know, I've been really – interested, especially in these last several years, in the subject of authoritarianism. And my interest in authoritarianism, not interest in it, like can't wait to try some of that, but my (laughs) concerns about authoritarianism (laughs) are overlay with my whole interest in the subject of bias that we've been taking so seriously. Because it seems to me one of the ways that authoritarian leaders work is they use our biases to manipulate us uh, to do their bidding and do their will. And on my really cynical days, um, I I, I start noticing that one of the ways authoritarians work, mafia and so on, is through protection rackets. And and I hate to say it, but there's a sense that a lot of theological systems work like a protection racket. Um, uh, You tell people they lack something uh, and then tell them you can provide it and and in religion we tend to say uh, our institution our organization will provide it for free but then of course there are lots of major strings attached um, if you keep wanting to receive it and then we make a not so subtle threat if they don't accept our free gift and and that that creates a whole way of of seeing the world but this takes me back Mike to that that line from Carl Jung that we're not having to prove the existence of the light, but we're telling people you already have eyes, there already is light there, and we're just trying to help you see and use the gifts that you've already been given. We're not telling you you have a lack, we're telling you the opposite. We're telling you you have treasures that um, you don't see yet. And I, I don't know, as I think of that, that feels like maybe part of what that word grace is. Actually, means it's not focused on lack; it's focused on surplus, and and helping you see how you're you're already blessed.
3: You know, just going back to the, the the light, I think often we in our religion, at least in Christianity, we look outward for light, but Jesus also said that we are the light of the world as well. And and I think one of the things the CAC is a center for action and contemplation. And contemplation is that place where we learn that the light within us is also the light that we are seeking. Um, And hopefully that will lead us to learn that the light that is in us is also the light that is in everybody else. And so out of solidarity, we act to bring love into the world. And there's so many programs, the CAC, that are meant to support that. There's the daily meditations, there's these podcasts, there's online ed programs, there's um, the living school, and then there's a conspire conference that's coming up. And it's in that conspire conference, it's looking at those stories, the various stories um, and the various levels of stories. The, the story about me, the story about the we story, about us, and then the, the world story. And I, being, being who I am, I always like to bring in something else and and that is because it's from my life. You know, I had I I needed to work through what I would call their story to get to me, to mm-hmm. get to my story, and to learn what out of their story made sense for the we for our story. And some of the, the world stories are really they don't work for me, even though there are those who would say that they do, but then there are other world stories that do work for me. Um and so for me just looking through those different stories and And there isn't like there's one, I mean, it's sort of like they all work together. There isn't like there's first you have me, then you have we, then you have the world, and then you're in the world and that's it. But the me and the we and the world, they sort of interweave and they work and they inform each other. And um, it will be interesting to see how all that comes through at the Conspired Conference. But for now, I'm just wondering if anyone has any words about those those stories.
1: First, I've got to say, Gigi, you're bringing in of the their story, um, stories that are imposed upon us from others by others. My gosh, that really has to be part of the way we we talk about these the interaction of these three stories, because that certainly happens on the level of race. It happens on the level of politics and religion and gender. And social class and economics and wealth and power and all the rest. So that is a powerful enrichment to that uh, to that framework. Um, But I'm I'm thrilled that this is going to be the theme of this year's conspire because it seems to me a whole lot of us we are so into our own pain or our own ambition or our own fear that when we look at the world, our vantage point is the vantage point of me. What can this do for me? How can this make me feel better? Um, I'm guessing that there's a lot of other, others of us, we, we're way more preoccupied looking at the world through our us uh, story, uh, whether it's our religion or race or nation or whatever. I have to say that I spent decades of my life trying to be a good Christian and that meant looking at the world through something called the Christian worldview, which was an us story. In other words, to the degree that I focused that my ultimate goal was to have a Christian worldview, in a sense, it meant that I could never transcend that and see the lar- look at any larger stories of, of the world and the cosmos and take seriously the stories of my neighbors. And, you know, in my upbringing, I couldn't take seriously the the stories that science brought to the table. Um, And so, uh, yeah, it just seems like this is a good time for for especially those of us who are trying to learn how to see, to take seriously these different stories by which we, uh, they become our vantage points for seeing the world.
2: It's funny, I think Brian, in the first episode you asked us all to to offer our own definition of bias and I said I tend to think of bias as a GPS system. Um, and so, to think about those layers of stories, I, I've been thinking about this a lot. I've always thought of, of it as kind of a, I, I'd use the GPS thing, the stories I tell myself about God, the stories I tell myself about people, and the stories I tell myself about myself, right? Mm-hmm. So, you get the GPS there. And I think about what happens when one of those stories fail. Mm-hmm. And it seems like a lot of time when one of them fails, the other two go as well because yeah. they're so interconnected, intertwine. right? Especially, right, I've, I've, you know, it's been a very unpleasant experience to realize how often my stories about people and God are just a projection of my story about myself.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, and so, having that fall apart is very unsettling and it leads to feeling very lost, but it's also such a paradoxical gift to get it out of the way. And let you see things afresh and see things anew, and then go back to that place where those stories are being told to you, and you can listen um as opposed to really thinking you know you have it figured out again, like so I think I said this before, like obsessing staring at a map in front of you instead of looking up and looking at the mountains or the sunset
1: <laughs> yes, well, it has been a, a really great pleasure and honor of, again this season to um to be in this conversation uh, with you three. My goodness, uh, it's been so rich. And, um, and Mike, I want to thank you for the vulnerability that you shared in telling us of that painful event in your life today. And I, I wonder if you, could, um, if you could close this time uh, by rereading that uh, Carl Jung quote in just a moment. But we've been talking through all this, uh, ep- all this series of episodes about how prayer is intentionally strengthening and guiding our desire to see, to see what's true, to see what's real, to in a sense say, I'm sure I'm being limited and boxed in by my biases. I'm sure that my vantage point has limitations and I'm, I'm asking for help from outside myself to help me not be limited by those things. And I'm, I'm calling out for help. And there's a beautiful song by one of my favorite songwriters. Uh, it was just, it isn't on a CD yet, but it was just released on YouTube. Um, it's by the great musician Bruce Coburn. And I thought I could read this as, uh, as a kind of closing prayer. Uh, and we'll put in the show notes where people can hear the song uh, being sung online. But it's, it's a kind of prayer that it seems to me can, uh, can in some ways bring together the, these rich conversations we've, uh, we've talked about today. And then Mike, you can close by, uh, by reading us that beautiful quote. Here it is uh, from Bruce Coburn. It's called, Us All. And that phrase, Us All, I think is bigger than me and it's bigger than the us stories, but it's the us all, the whole cosmos all of us humans of all of, in all of our diversity, plus our fellow animal creatures and plant creatures, and plus the stars and the, uh, everything, us all in the biggest sense. Here it is. Here we are, faced with a choice, secrets and walls or open embrace. Like it or not, the human race is us all. History is what it is. Scars we inflict on each other don't die, but slowly soak into the DNA of us all, us all. I pray we not fear to love. I pray we be free of judgment and shame. Open the vein. Let kindness reign o'er us all, us all.
2: Christianity must indeed begin again, from the very beginning, if it's to meet its high educative task. So long as religion is only faith in outward form and not experience in our own souls, nothing of any importance has happened. A person who doesn't know this from their own experience may be a most learned theologian, but they have no idea of religion and still less of education. Theologians often fail to see that it's not a matter of proving the existence of the light, but of blind people who do not know that their eyes could see. It's high time that we realize it's pointless to praise the light and preach it if nobody can see it. It's much more needful to teach people The art of seeing.
0: Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.